Welcome to the Westside Gathering Podcast, and thanks for making the time to learn and grow with us. Here you'll find teaching from our live Sunday gatherings. After the message, we'll say a little more about our church and how you can connect. But for now, let's jump right in. I'm sure there's been um, moments in your life, your own life, when you've committed to something or been faithful to something that has gotten two different reactions. Sometimes an embrace from people, and sometimes it's maybe been more of um, uh, maybe of a confrontation. Who knows? Because what you were saying or doing ruffled some feathers, and uh, that's a light way of maybe saying that. But I, when I think about the resurrection, the resurrection is such a beautiful thing, such an important thing, and we're in this season called. Easter tide. We want to live and lean into um, just the beauty and the power of the resurrection. But the resurrection also ruffled feathers. The resurrection also shifted things and was confrontational in some ways. And there's a passage of scripture we're going to pick up from where we left off last week in Acts 3. We're going to pick up in Acts chapter 4. And we're going to read this continual scene taking place uh, in the early church where we see how the resurrection and the proclamation of it ruffled feathers. It, 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 it confronted people. So here's, here's this passage. Um, read with me, Acts chapter 4, verse 1. While Peter and John were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came to them, much annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming that in Jesus there is the resurrection of the dead. So they arrested them. And put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who heard the word believed, and they numbered about 5,000. The next day their rulers, elders, and scribes assembled in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, Caiaphas, John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they, made, when they had made the prisoners stand in their midst, they inquired, by what power? Or by what name did you do this? They're referring to someone who was just healed um, in the previous chapter in the story. By what power, by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if, if we're questioned today because of a good deed done to someone who was sick and are asked how this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that this man is standing before you in good health by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. And this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders. It has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven among mortals by which we must be saved. God, as we look into this text today, as we want to lean into the power of the resurrection in this season, again, we just surrender ourselves, our minds, our hearts. We want to make room for your voice, for your will, for your love, for your gospel in our hearts and lives today. Amen. Amen. Um, if I whistle something, I wonder if you might recognize it, and you might even know like what to whistle next. You ready for it? Are you guys online ready for it? Like maybe videotape yourself doing this and we'll see it after, right? So, <laughs> anybody know what's next? No? <laughs> Has anybody seen the movie Frozen? And the, the whisper in the wind and that little line, melodic line? <laughs> the next line is, 
Anyways, whatever. Um, the, the point of it is, I was thinking about like I was thinking about music and how uh, you know when 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 a composer writes a score, they often start it with one little line. And that one melodic line, whether it's in a beautiful like um, musical score or even in a simple jazz uh, tune, that line gets kind of gets becomes the core and it becomes used all over the song. It, it, the variations of it, it gets stretched, it gets shortened, it gets picked up just a little bit, it gets uh, embellished. And in the movie Frozen, that little, little, you know, whistle is all over the movie. It keeps coming back over and over again. And that little melodic line is, is kind of done softly in a sad or reflective moment. It comes back in a scary moment. It's in these big moments of the film. And then it's in these celebrative moments. And then you'll often catch it when the, you know, the credits are being done again and the, the line comes back because there's this core melody that just keeps coming back and back and back because it's the heartbeat of the song. And that's, well, this is what we notice in this story. This story is a response, a reaction, a telling of what happens when someone is healed by Peter and John, one of the apostles, and they're responding to the reaction to this, but their response their response is the core message of the early church, which is the resurrection of Jesus. It's the core idea that, that keeps getting shared over and over again. And we see it in verses 10, 11, and 12 again. You notice how Peter responds, this Jesus whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead. This stone that you builders rejected, but God made the cornerstone salvation rescue that God, God's restoration project for the world comes under no other name but the name of Jesus only through his name there's no other name and it's the core message the core idea of the gospel proclamation there's there's bigger pieces of the gospel if we had time to unpack it all but the climax of it is that God raised Jesus from the dead and this resurrection theme comes up. And why does it come up here? Well, because as we read last week and in Acts chapter 3, if you go back to it or you want to read back if you weren't with us, Peter and John heal a crippled man in the name of Jesus. And it throws everybody in an uproar. But when they're asked how this happened and what happened, they, they give a response. And again, and again, as they're kind of confronted with these leaders, they're asked the same question. By what power, by what name did you do this? They've already explained part of it, but they're pushing again. By what power, by what name did you do this? And it creates a storm among the religious leaders who happen to also be in that little pocket of the world, cultural leaders, social leaders. Who are these people? Verse 1 calls them the priests, the captain of the temple, which is like the temple police, um, the Sadducees, which was another faction of religious leaders. In, in verse 5, they're called rulers and elders and scribes and the high priest and even the, the family of the high priest. So you get this sense that Peter and John are standing in front of these Jewish aristocrats, the people who held social and economic and political influence of that region, even though they were under Roman rule. And it says these people were very much annoyed. The, all these people were very much annoyed by Peter and John. They were annoyed by Peter and John's constant teaching and announcements about Jesus being risen from the grave because they played a part in, in sending him to the cross. And now John's saying, 
No, no, I'm going to tell you who did this. And they are annoyed by understanding this, by knowing this. And Peter and John are preaching this and proclaiming this everywhere. We know this because of the amount of people that respond. They're educating and, and, and empowering ordinary crowds in an alternate way of life available by the resurrection of Jesus. Where the world hungers and thirsts, the ache in the human heart, the, the destruction of sin and rebellion, and the world is longing for something. And here, John and Peter and John give them what they're longing for. And they speak of resurrection, that God was at work in this person, Jesus, when God raised him from the dead. And that God was doing this way beyond what was happening in the temple, which these religious leaders had influence over. And way beyond now what was happening in the sacrificial system that these leaders were managing. And, and using also, because it was part of their faith, the, the Jewish faith, that, that would help people figure out their lives, manage their lives, get close to God, deal with their sin. But now Jesus' resurrection fulfills all that. Jesus' resurrection fulfills the temple's purpose. Jesus' resurrection makes the function of the temple obsolete. The system no longer needs to be managed in the same way. People gathering and the idea of a Jewish synagogue continues to be important as the church even gathers in similar ways to learn and grow. But here's Peter and John. They pull from one of the Jewish Psalms, Psalm 118, where it says, the stone the builders rejected becomes the capstone, the cornerstone of what God is going to do. Jesus is this cornerstone of this, this new temple God is building, this, this foundation of this new temple God is building. And it's not going to be about God's local property. It's going to be about God's local people. It's not going to be about a physical temple erected, but now the scriptures call us and tell us that, that, that God will fill us with his very own spirit. We become the temple of God when we put our trust in Christ and God's building this people that's not, you know, stuck only to a place or a property. And this freaks the religious leaders out. This freaks the temple leaders out. They feel threatened. Their power, their control, their ability, their influence, they feel like it's going to crumble. I mean, if this Jesus really did rise from the dead, if God really did this, this God that they also served, if he raised this person whom they took part in crucifying, if he raised him from the dead, their power, their control, their influence is threatened. Because it meant that the restoration that God was doing, that God always promised for them and for humanity was no longer dependent on their system, was no longer dependent on, this, on the rituals they had, was no longer dependent in one just block of space that was called the temple here because Jesus was restored back to life. And if Jesus was restored back to life, the promise of restoration and resurrection, uh, resurrection was available for everybody. And they now were feeling obsolete. And they felt threatened. Because the resurrection proves that restoration comes in and through Jesus Christ. Think about that one more time. The resurrection proves, shows us that restoration comes in and through Jesus. That's why Luke, in writing this story, and reminds us that Peter and John said, no other name is as powerful. Salvation and rescue and restoration is not possible under anybody else in its fullness but Jesus. And so the religious leaders feel like they're losing their powers. But not just that. Their motives, their intentions, their actions will be judged. 
Because if they keep pushing their system, but God is doing this, the question is why? Why are they doing something different than God's doing? God's moved on. God's moved on to the fulfillment of what's happening. If they're just holding on to their thing, now their motives are being exposed and their actions are being exposed and a power shift is taking place. Think about it, right? Think about this power shift that begins to take place because the resurrection not only restores, it rebukes anything that takes the place of what God is doing. Whom you crucified becomes whom God raised from the dead. God is using these uneducated apostles to tell the world what the elite religious leaders were trying to do. Verse 13 talks about the uneducated apostles doing this in Jesus' name. Something must be up. And that bugs the elite religious leaders. And the one whom they saw as unworthy, a Nazarene carpenter, becomes the capstone for the future hope of what God is doing. There's a power shift happening in this moment. And the builders of the temple who became judges in their culture are now being judged themselves. They're now in the seat of judgment. Their motives, their actions are being exposed. And the resurrection is showing them up in a sense, right? Now, I get it. You know, it, generally in our culture, people would cheer at this, right? Because it's like, yes, the religious leaders are being confronted. You can like Google TED Talks and you'll find a whole bunch of talk, TED Talks against religion and look at New York, New York Times or other journals or other things and like religion sucks, religion is the worst thing that ever happened in the world, religion should die. And so we might, you know, even, even Christians will say, you know, uh, you know, our faith is a relationship with Jesus, not a religion. I, I would love to take time to really clarify that. It's much more than that and there's some religious pieces to what we do that's very important. But here's the thing, we might cheer, all oh, the religious leaders, they're down. It's only them that's being confronted. But there's another temple. There's other temples that are being confronted at the same time. It's the temples we erect in our lives that we think save us, that we think rescue us. Even in our world today, when you look at the political temples, the economic temples, the cultural temples, they've been erected because people want to believe that these temples will rescue them. If you walk into Fairview today, Fairview Mall or any mall, that's kind of like the big glorious consumeristic temple. And you can walk through the gates of any store you want and just kind of like bow at their product. I know I'm making it a little extreme, but you know. But the modern secular thought in our world today is also a temple. And they too want us to believe that progress only happens through their ideas and through their initiatives. And on one side, you have progressives who say the progression of our ideas and of our culture and, and what it means to be human, this will save us. And conservatives on the other side say, no, no, if we conserve what we had in this decade or that decade or that era, this will save us. Progressives and conservatives build up their temples and they want us to believe that that will save us. But neither of those temples save us within this modern secular thought. Neither save us. Neither will rescue us from the loss that the human heart feels. Neither will give us the full identity that, that, that we long for in our lives. Neither will give us the freedom we believe exists. And there's not enough material possessions to give our lives the kind of meaning that we hunger for. They all crumble in the wake of the resurrection. They're all judged 
in the wake of the resurrection. And we too, as we participate in them and sometimes erect them ourselves, we can be judged in the wake of the resurrection because we are presenting to the world a false option that's just gonna crumble at some point. So when Peter and John say only Jesus saves, they're saying resurrection points to restoration. And that's good news because that means that whether we're the judges or not the judges, we don't have to hold it all together. We can be free from the need for power and control and experience God's new life in the resurrected Jesus. And it's good news for the oppressed and it's good news for everyone in culture and all of us because systems or possessions that we've relied on to rescue us, they're not what they're all cracked up to be. And we can experience God's new life in the resurrected Jesus. Only Jesus saves. Only Jesus rescues. Only Jesus restores. Here's kind of maybe three, four ideas, really bullet point to help us grasp it. The resurrection points to a few things. It points to life over death. The resurrection points to salvation over sin. The resurrection points to right over wrong or justice over injustice. The resurrection points to wholeness and healing over brokenness. Points to all these things. This is what rescues us. There's an, an African-American biblical scholar. Name, his name is Willie Jennings. And he's, he's, one of his books is on my reading list. I haven't gotten to it yet, but I've read some of his commentary on Acts. And he says this about chapter four. He says, Jesus is the cornerstone of my building effort that would move toward life. And it doesn't mean that it's his building effort, but he says, if I'm going to really move toward life, Jesus must be the cornerstone of the building effort of my steps, because only Jesus enacts a new social order that saves. No one else can do this. And this is, he says, why? He says, because we are, we are rebuilding our lives with the good news that God in Christ raises the dead and life can be lived differently now because of that. That's the power of resurrection that restores and that, this, this is the message that saves. This is why Peter and John says salvation only comes through Jesus. But it's also the message that shakes things up. It's also the message that creates power shifts. It's also the message that confronts. It's also the message that exposes the modern temples in our world, whether they're religious or secular, it exposes that. And it exposes our own hearts. And, and one of the ways that we move into this that I just, I see vivid in this story today is this idea of the loyalty that, that the early church had to Jesus and the resurrection. It's this kind of idea of a new loyalty that, that comes when we come to know who Jesus is. I like the word loyalty because the original word for faith in the Greek language is the word pistis and it can actually mean allegiance and loyalty. The idea of faith uh, actually meant someone I was putting my faith in, something I'm putting my faith in is something I'm, I'm giving my allegiance to. I'm, I have this new loyalty. And, and I love what this means because if there is a new loyalty like we see in Peter and John and the implications it has for their life and the life of people around them, it means a few things for our lives. And I'm going to just wrap up with just a few ideas around this. This new loyalty that is birthed in the resurrection leads to, it alters my life. It alters our lives. Today 
and I'm gonna, my son's not gonna be happy that I say this, but today is his 20th birthday. So 20, yeah, you can clap. Yeah, woohoo. So 20, 20 years ago today, he altered my life. <laughs> there was a new commitment, right, in my life. There was a new reality in my life. And I'll never forget that taking my son, brand, just newly born, and the nurse coaching me in how to clean him and not drown him in the hospital sink, <laughs> and just, just, you know, showing me how to be gentle here and kind of clean him off and then wipe him, wipe him and dry him, put a little hat on him, and, and, and it was like a stark reality in that moment as I was bathing my brand new son, I realized this is going to alter my life. It's going to change my life. I have a new loyalty or an added loyalty here in this regard. And it wasn't just me. It wasn't just Frank and myself. Now it was Frank and myself and Andrew. And three years later, it would be Julia. And it, it has altered any type of commitment that's significant, that beautiful, that powerful, that real alters your life. And this new loyalty, true loyalty, the fullness of loyalty to Jesus, this allegiance, this faith in him that leads us to talk about it in languages like trust. I trust Jesus with everything. It changes our lives. It alters our lives because Jesus, whom God raised from the dead, is our good shepherd. Jesus said it. He said, I am the good shepherd. And when he makes that claim in the gospel of John, he alludes all the way back to Psalm 23, where the psalmist says, the Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. And now my life is under new management because he is my shepherd, because he is my God. And when you and I pray Psalm 23, and maybe you just might pray it off a greeting card, or it might pop into your email if you're subscribed to like, you know, good daily thoughts from the Bible. It's a powerful prayer in Psalm 23. And as it connects to the words of Jesus, because when we say the Lord is our shepherd, we are saying we live under different management. God doesn't just care for us. We don't just welcome his protection we put ourselves under his management and that alters our lives that changes our decisions and just like that day that andrew was born began to change my decisions and my time and my schedule and my finances and all these different things in such greater ways when we put our life under the care under the management under the lordship of jesus everything in our lives begins to change and these early apostles these early followers got that and they knew that. And it led them to tell everybody about this resurrected Jesus. And obviously, I think about that time when Andrew was born. We told everybody. We waited until you know, he was fully arrived. Then we told everybody. Because we wanted to announce to the world, we have this son. The, the gospel writers and the, the, the first followers of Jesus, the apostles, this was big news. They announced it to the world that Jesus was resurrected, that though Jesus was crucified, God raised him from the dead. And this is why Peter and John are proclaiming who Jesus is, why they boldly stand before all the people, before the religious leaders, before the elites, before anybody, to the world and culture to announce that Jesus Christ is Lord. They're alerting the, the world to that. And you know what we call that? We call that good news. That's what the word gospel means. It's good news. And it tells the world that there's a new king, that there's a new ruler who will bring everything 
into perspective and make everything right. And it, that new loyalty led them to announce this. That new loyalty led them to, to give aid to people. Notice that the resurrection led them to pray for that crippled person on the side of the road and say, get up and walk in the name of Jesus. And that was something that brought goodness to that person. The good news of the gospel led them to trust and know that the power of Jesus' name could bring healing to this person. And so, yes, I know last week we clarified this and we always need to that, that the, the manifestation of the resurrection power is not always or only in, in physical healings. In this moment, we see it because here's Peter and John. They proclaim the name of Jesus and the wholeness that can come. And that can be seen in, in, in our emotional state, in our relationships, in the way we view the world, in the way we view one another. And even physically, we see pockets of that show up because it points us to God's fullness and power. And that... Uh, that resurrection message, and we looked at this a few weeks back, led the church to be generous because they realized I, none of this is mine. I trust God with all of this. So they were generous with each other and they were generous with the world around them. They gave aid to people around them in the form of sharing Christ with them so other, can, other people can find wholeness and then living out of that gratitude and blessing other people. And I like to call this the, the, the two sides of the gospel, the good news of the gospel and the goodness of the gospel. The good news we proclaim to the world and the goodness we share to the world. And sometimes that goodness is a supernatural healing and sometimes that goodness is coming alongside those who need it out of our love for one another and for God. There's good news and there's goodness. But here's something we can't forget and we just see it in this story. I'm going to end with this. Our new loyalty sometimes annoys people. Our new loyalty to Jesus as king of our lives, when, when we put our lives under his management, sometimes that annoys people. It annoyed the religious leaders. It, they felt threatened. And often it annoys pockets of our culture today. Because when people recognize that what they held dear and maybe they use that for their success, for their, um, you know, wealth, for their, um, you know, goals. And all of a sudden they realize, oh, this is not what I thought it was. That message of good news can sometimes feel threatening and it can sometimes annoy people. And when ideologies and theories pop up that, 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 that maybe feel threatened by the good news of Jesus, people can be annoyed by that. And sometimes people can be annoyed because... Man, when I come to know Jesus as Lord, that exposes my own heart. And sometimes that can annoy people personally. And so I want, I want you to notice that there is something here that sometimes happens when we announce the gospel to our world, when we alert people to the good news. Sometimes the world responds in annoyance. And sometimes that annoyance is heavier than other times. Sometimes it's persecution. Sometimes it's not. Now, don't get me wrong. I don't, I don't, don't never equate annoying the world with preaching the gospel. Sometimes preaching the gospel will annoy the world. But not everything that we do to annoy the world is preaching the gospel. Sometimes it's just me being stupid. Sometimes it's just somebody mouthing off uh, the way they shouldn't be. Sometimes it's our own pride. And sometimes we feel, actually, sometimes Christians feel a sense of pride when they annoy the world. No, that, that's not our goal. Peter and John didn't wake up and say, I'm going to prison today. 
That wasn't their goal. It wasn't like a, 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 like a medal of honor, like a sense of glory, like if I get to prison, then I've preached the gospel. No, that day, prison happened to be a result of announcing the good news. But nobody should put that prison sentence or that arrest or that annoyance on a pedestal as what we look to achieve. We should be ready for it. We should know that it can come, but we never put it up on a pedestal. Just a, a quick reminder, the word martyr is the, is the word for witness in the, in the New Testament. The word for witness does not mean you automatically die for your faith. But over some decades, some Christians died because they were a witness. And then the word martyr became associated with that. And so we use it today like, I want to be a martyr for for Jesus, or I want to be a martyr for this cause, and we associate it with a suffering. It could bring suffering, but that's not the idea. The idea is to be a witness, and that's really key to understand. And re remember this, when Peter and John preached this message, the religious leaders were annoyed by them, but 5,000 people responded to the message that day and became followers of Jesus. There's always people who are ready to respond, yet there can sometimes be people who are ready to confront. I was thinking about Martha Luther King in this way when he um, had such a conviction about justice in our world. He, he was willing, if needed, to go to jail, and he wrote letters from a prison cell in Birmingham. And he would alert the world, not to the, not, I, I don't want to just make justice the whole gospel, but justice becomes kind of part of the big picture of the gospel with reconciliation. And, and, and when he spoke this message, he said it like this. He said, you know, one day the arc of justice will bend towards God's new creation. And that's what his hope was. And there were many who just were so refreshed by that message. But then there was a pocket of people that would send them to jail for that message. And yet he still alerted the world to the need for justice, right? Even in a greater sense, justice fits inside the big message of the gospel. In a bigger sense, our calling is to alert the world to the good news of Jesus. And alongside that, the goodness of the gospel. And to be ready for whatever comes through that. And here, here's how I want to end today. If the resurrection doesn't lead us to this new loyalty, this new loyalty that, 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 that alters our life, this new loyalty that leads us to announce the gospel, this new loyalty that, that will lead us to also aid the world around us, and this new loyalty that sometimes will annoy the world around us. But here's the heart of it. If the resurrection doesn't lead to a new loyalty in my life or your life, we haven't responded to the resurrected Jesus. We might have responded to a theory. We might have responded to a really great idea. But we haven't responded to the resurrected Jesus who calls himself Lord. New loyalty is the response to the resurrection of Jesus. Let's pray. God, as we reflect on um, just the beauty and power of your resurrection again this week. And we just are reminded. Are reminded of how significant and life-altering this message is. God, we pray right now in this moment, you would um, refresh our minds and our hearts if, if we have forgotten, or maybe in a new way, some of us listening, needing to know for the first time who Jesus is.
the resurrected Lord. God, we want to embrace this core idea within the, within the gospel so we can be kind of like a musical piece that lives it and repeats it and embellishes it and lets the world around us know in variety of situations, in variety of, of contexts, in variety of cultures, in, in variety of ways, oh God, we, we long to be that kind of people because of our loyalty to the Lordship of Christ, to be people who alert the world to this incredible message in all kinds of situations. Oh God, and we pray for the overflow of, of good news and goodness. And God, in our, in our faithfulness to you, this new commitment, and maybe a renewed commitment, or an ongoing one, oh God, you, will you give us the wisdom and discernment in those moments when it annoys the world around us. Let us be ready for it. Let us not be fearful of it, but also give us wisdom to make sure that we're truly alerting the world to the good news and not getting in the way. Oh God, we just we bring all this before you because we so long for those around us to know the beauty and life and abundance that comes in Christ. And so we just come before you humbly as repentant sinners who have received your mercy. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. We hope this message helps guide you on your spiritual journey of discovering the life and message of Jesus. We update this podcast weekly, so why not hit subscribe and journey with us? Who are we? Westside Gathering is a local church in the West Island of Montreal. We're a simple community of faith where we want you to feel welcome, even if you're not into church or religion. We meet every Sunday, but you can also find smaller groups, environments, and resources for all ages between Sundays. Find out more at westsidegathering.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Vimeo. We'd love to hear from you. Ask a question, ask for help, or let us know how we can pray for you. If you'd like to contribute financially, just go to westsidegathering.com slash giving. Until next time, peace.